0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the History of Forgotten Lands podcast. Before we get into things this week, I just want to say, please consider following the Instagram. It's at Lands. That's the number 10. With the season finale coming up next week and the subsequent break that the show will go on, the Instagram is going to be extremely important because I'm going to use it as a sort of community outreach platform where I can put out little polls on my story, and you guys can have a voice in which direction the show will continue on. That being said, let's get into this week's episode. Today we will be talking about the Republic of Ezo. The Tokugawa shogunate had been the de facto government of Japan since the earliest years of the 17th century. Although the state was still officially the Empire of Japan, and it still officially had an emperor from the royal line, the real power on the islands was now in the hands of the shogun, who was effectively a samurai warlord. However, by the 1860s, the world in which Japan lived was changing very rapidly. The country had recently been opened up to the outside world and the subsequent westernization of Japanese society did not sit well with many members of the traditional ruling class, which was the samurai. Feeling that the shogun had failed to protect their interests, many influential samurai began to exert influence over the emperor, a young man who would come to be known as Meiji. The idea was that if the shogun would not protect the traditional power of the samurai, Maybe the even more traditional power of the Emperor would. With the leading members of the country now turning against him, the shogun, Tokugawa Yoshinobu, simply rolled over. He was already losing, so maybe by ceding power to the Emperor peacefully, he would be able to save the Tokugawa clan from any acts of vengeance and preserve a place for them in the Emperor's new government. Unfortunately, that just wasn't in the cards for Yoshinobu. Some of his old allies were feeling quite spiteful, and they pressured Meiji into issuing a decree that officially abolished the Tokugawa clan. This was an unthinkable dishonor to Yoshinobu, and so he launched a rebellion in an attempt to take control back from the emperor. Yoshinobu may have lost some key allies at the top, but the men under his command still outnumbered those of Meiji by about 30,000. Despite this smaller force, Meiji's army was far more modernized than that of the shogun, which brought the imperials a swift victory in what became known as the Boshin War. With Yoshinobu having personally surrendered in June of 1869, that was the final nail in the coffin for the Tokugawa shogunate, or so many thought. As it just so happens, many Tokugawa loyalists had seen which way the tides were turning early on in the war. But instead of jumping ship on Yoshinobu, they did the exact opposite. In October of 1868, halfway through the war, hundreds of shogunate officials hopped on ships in Tokyo Bay and headed north. Led by a samurai named Enomoto Takeaki, they stopped first in the city of Sendai, where they hoped to rally the northern clans to the shogun's banner. This mission was met with failure and ultimately abandoned when many of the most major clans in the region came out in support of Meiji, so Enomoto and his men got back on their ships and continued sailing north until they arrived on the island of Hokkaido, which at the time was called Ezo. If you pull out a map of Japan, Hokkaido slash Ezo is that big kind of triangle-shaped island at the very north of the country now that they had nowhere left to go enomoto's men needed a foothold on the island if they had any hope of surviving the advancing imperial army and so it was that on december 8th of 1868 4000 of enomoto's men stormed the city of hakodate and secured it in the name of the tokugawa shogunate from there they launched a series of conquest campaigns across the island which saw all of its most important castles and towns captured before the year was out. Now that shogunate power was secure in the region, Enomoto reached out to the imperial court in an effort to secure recognition from Meiji, but this was firmly denied, no doubt thanks to Yoshinobu's former allies that were still active in court. However, the emperor's failure to recognize Enomoto's government didn't mean he wasn't going to try to make one anyway. Therefore, on January 27th of 1869, Enomoto Takeaki reigned in the new year by establishing the Republic of Ezo on the island of Hokkaido as a breakaway state from the Empire of Japan. The fact that this was a republic may sound pretty good to you, but don't get too excited. In a republic, the government is run by representatives of the people, and in most western countries today, those representatives are chosen by the people, But this was not at all the case in Ezo. Under Enemoto's government, voting rights were held exclusively by the samurai class, who were just the nobility and very much not chosen by the people in any way. So, Republican may be, but Democratic not so much. Either way, in the first series of elections, Enemoto was elected to become president of Ezo, and various cabinet members, like the ministers of the army and navy, were also chosen by the voting samurai. And here's something to note. Though the voting class was extremely limited, this was the first governmental election ever in Japan. And here's another thing to note. During the early winter months of 1869, Enomoto began to formalize the structure of his military, and in this new structure, the military was commanded overall by the Minister of the Army that I had mentioned before, but his second-in-command was a Frenchman. In fact, the next step down was also French, with the four brigades of Ezo each being commanded by different French officers. This, combined with the fact that Ezo had a Republican government, pretty clearly demonstrates the issues that started all of this nonsense in the first place. Japan was westernizing. This new Western government and army was about to be put to the test, too. By April, two things had happened. Winter was over, and Meiji's imperial forces had completely consolidated control over the Japanese mainland, meaning they had only one place left to go. Ezo. It was a force of 7,000 men that landed on the island on April 9th of 1869 and headed straight for Ezo's capital of Hakodate. The Imperials quickly advanced through the countryside, capturing key strategic points along the way, until the only thing left was for them to take the fort of Goryokaku, where Animoto's government was headquartered. Unfortunately, Goryokaku is a star fort, specifically designed to be nearly impossible to besiege. The star shape means that anyone that storms the walls would always be sandwiched between two battlements of defenders and the moat surrounding the whole thing means you can't storm it in the first place. However, as unbreakable as Goryukaku is, you have to consider the game they were playing. This was one single fort of rebels that was now completely surrounded, without a navy, by the modern army of the whole of Japan. After months of nothing but dwindling numbers, Enomoto's government had no choice but to surrender, And so they did on June 27th of 1869, bringing about an end not only to the Republic of Ezo, but the Tokugawa shogunate and the Japanese feudal system in the process, both of which had dominated the country for centuries. So there you go, five months of rebellion, and Ezo has been forgotten. But why has the Republic of Ezo been forgotten? I think this one has a lot to do with the domino effect of East Asian history in this time period. Usually, it goes something like this. Japan was opened up to the West, which led to the Meiji Restoration, which led to the First Sino-Japanese War, which led to the Second Sino-Japanese War, which led to World War II, and you know the rest. Unfortunately for the Republic of Ezo, It was just a part of the Meiji Restoration domino, and since it was kind of a historical dead end, where something died out and nothing was born from it directly, it rarely gets its own chapter in the histories. So, that's all I have for you this week. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History of Forgotten Lands podcast. A reminder to follow me on Instagram at ForgottenLands, that's the number 10 and I hope to see you again next week for the season finale.